to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. As always, it's a delight to be with you here. And we've got a rather shocking story to start off today's show. To help me tell that story, I have Jonathan Weinberg. He is the founder and the CEO of AutoSlash, which is a terrific site that helps people find the best prices on rental cars. And then it actually rechecks to make sure that the price hasn't dropped. And if it has, it lets you know so you can get the best price on rentals. Hey, Jonathan, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Hey, Pauline, thanks for having me. So I just was talking about your great service where you're going to get people really good prices. But right now, it's near impossible to get any rental cars in some parts of the country, right? It's a massive challenge. Um, it really is something that we've never seen before. I, it, it's I, The word unprecedented is, is overused, but this really is an unprecedented situation. I founded AutoSlash over 10 years ago, and I've never seen anything like this in, in my entire career. Um, it, it's quite astounding. So, so They're just To give what we're talking about in a nutshell, rental car agencies in the pretty much the entire state of Florida are sold out, and in the major parts of Texas, of Arizona, and of Colorado are also f- facing huge shortages. That's it in a nutshell, Right. In, in a nutshell, yes. Um, and and it, it isn't even limited to those areas alone. Florida is certainly the, the hardest hit. Leading into this weekend, 19 out of 20 airports in Florida are completely sold out of rental wow. cars. We're turning people away right now. But it, it is, as you said, it is affecting other areas, Denver, Phoenix, many, many airports in Texas. And now we're, we're seeing it expand to other areas of the country as well. It's just very, very tough to find availability. There are m- way fewer cars than there are people who want to rent them. So the people who are getting cars, how much are they paying right now? It's pretty shocking. Um, some of these rates are over $700 a day. Um, wow. When availability gets really low, the rental car companies will jack up the price and they will see what people's pain points are, how much they're willing to pay. So why is this happening? Why in 2019 could you easily rent a car, but now everything's sold out? Well, I think in the past, the demand patterns were fairly predictable. The rental car agencies knew how many cars they needed at a given point in the year. So for example, they knew when spring break was going to hit, they knew that they needed lots more cars in Florida. They needed lots more cars in, in Arizona. But what they were not prepared for is what happens when you have a global pandemic, because nobody has ever been through this before. There were no rental cars in 1918 the last time this happened. So they did the only thing that they really could do, which is to try to just hunker down and basically protect their business. And the biggest expense in a car rental company is basically their vehicle fleet. So they started selling off massive numbers of vehicles as quickly as they could to try to raise cash and try to shore up their finances. And uh, when we talked, because I also did an article on this for Fromers.com, you, you had some fascinating things to say. You said that because more people are taking road trips, you have a lot of cars being used for those instead of people flying, they're, they're renting for one, two weeks. And so that also hurts supply. And because a lot of people, you said, uh, moved out of cities, and so they need a car where they are, and so they're also doing long-term rentals. So we have this shortage. Why don't the, the, the car rental companies simply buy cars and, and make this better? Well, 
I think ideally that's what they would like to do. But the problem is that what's occurring is that the car rental companies are competing with everyone else in the market in order to get those vehicles. And because all these demand patterns have shifted and you had interruptions to global supply chains, things like the semiconductor shortage that has been reported in the news and also difficulty of the auto manufacturers for getting parts from Asia, it's causing a lot of difficulty actually producing those vehicles. And then even when they can produce them, there's a tremendous amount of demand for them because, like you said, people are moving out of cities. They previously took public transportation. Now they're, they need a car. Um, so in some cases, they're buying these cars and they're actually competing with the car rental companies themselves in order to, to buy them so that it's driving prices up. Or they're renting cars because they didn't want to buy. They're not really sure if they're going to stay in the suburbs. They're not really sure if they're going to move back to the city. And they're keeping these cars for months at a time, and that's taking them off the market. And it's it's basically you know causing this shortage for people who want to rent for typical you know long weekends, um, road trips, that sort of thing. Right. So it's it's kind of a, a a perfect storm of things that are happening that is conspiring to create this massive shortage right now, and right at the worst possible time when people are just starting to travel again as they're getting vaccinated and starting to feel a little more comfortable. Well, it looks like the problems right now are in the Sun Belt, the places where people are going for spring break in Florida, in Texas, in Colorado. Maybe the skiers are having these issues. Do we know whether this is going to spread to the rest of the country when travel picks up in those regions too? Well, we don't know for sure, but every indication that we can see at Auto Slash says that this problem is only going to get worse over time. And in fact, it's been getting worse for the last few weeks. Um, we first started to see it in the couple of weeks leading into um, President's Day weekend and Valentine's Day weekend. We saw a tremendous shortage for people um, looking to rent in Florida and, the, and these Sunbelt areas. Um, but now we're seeing that expand to other areas of the country as well. And it's not to the point where things are completely sold out in you know in large swaths of the country, but isolated cases in, in one airport here, one city over there, um, but it's starting to expand. And it's it's very concerning to us because people are, are just really going to you know travel more as they, more vaccinations occur. Sure. And I think that the rental car companies are not going to be able to acquire vehicles quickly enough in order to meet that demand. So what is the advice? Because a lot of us are going to need rental cars in the coming months. What can you do if you are a traveler? You know you're going to be visiting your mother in California. You don't want to be stuck using her car only. What what do you do? Well, the most important thing you can do is plan your trip way ahead of time. Is think about what your plans are going to be for the next few months, where you might want to be, and decide to go ahead and you know map that out and rent a car. Um, the nice thing about car rentals is that you don't have to prepay for your rental. Unlike your airline tickets, where you've got a you know they charge your credit card immediately upon booking. With car rentals, while they do offer prepaid options and sometimes the slightly lower rates, you can actually usually do better by booking a pay later reservation. And basically what that means is that you can reserve the car without even giving your credit card. And you can basically have that reservation set. And if you decide to change or cancel it at some point in the future because you decide to go somewhere else or you can't make the trip, it's easily cancelable without a penalty. So we recommend people really giving it some thought. And even if you're not 100% sure that you're going to go on the trip, make a reservation so you have it. So either you, A, can have the car or B, not have to pay $750 a day for it. Right. But I know that probably a lot of our listeners are thinking, okay, but if I'm worried about $750 a day, 
and I see a $50 a day rental that I have to pay in advance for, wouldn't it be the better part of wisdom to just put down the money now? Won't I be A, more likely to be guaranteed a car that way and B, be more likely to lock in the price? Well, it's a common misconception that if you prepay for your car rental, that, you know, that's going to guarantee it. A lot of people think that once you, you know, you prepay for it, the rental car company sets aside that vehicle for you and sort of earmarks it as Pauline's vehicle. But that's actually not the way the industry works. Uh, The way it works is that they will just continue to rent cars out. If someone shows up five minutes before you and they have one car on the lot and that person has uh, booked a pay later reservation, you have a prepaid reservation they will rent the car to that person because they're standing in front of them and they know that that person's going to take the car. Wow. So, I mean, you're not you're not at risk of losing money. They're certainly going to refund you your money. But the thing is, though, that prepaying doesn't guarantee you the vehicle. Yeah. Um, and the other side of it is that there are penalties for canceling or changing your plans with prepaying. Whereas if you book a pay later rate, you can track it with AutoSlash and we'll let you know if the price goes down. And like I said, prices are going up but they're not always going up. Um, they tend to be sort of volatile in the weeks and months leading up to the uh, your trip. Uh-huh. And then what happens is that the last few days, you know, once availability starts to get really tight, then prices will just go up and up and up. But there are opportunities to save. And that's where AutoSlash really specializes. We, we track the price of the rental. We email you when the price drops, and then you can rebook and save. I know this isn't your business, but... Uh, what about the car sharing services? Uh, should people be, when they encounter a an airport, an area that's fully sold out, should they be turning to them? Absolutely. I mean, if, if you can't get a hold of a traditional car rental, car sharing services are certainly options. You know, it just like Airbnb, there are, you know, people have great experiences with them. There are people who don't have such great experiences with them, but if you're in a bind and you need a car and you can't find one with the major rental car companies, uh, Turo is, is, is a great company. They have a lot of what they call hosts on there that are renting out their own personal vehicles. Uh, Get Around is another one. Uh-huh. Um, and then the big companies like Enterprise own uh, car sharing companies like Zipcar. That's another option as well. Well, it's a fascinating development and we, we will keep watching it. I'm sure you will, Jonathan. Absolutely. Thank we, you. We're living it every day. Yeah. Thank you for appearing on the travel show. Up next, we're going to talk about vacations that you can do by walking. You don't have to worry about a rental car. Our next guest is Victor Prince, who wrote a terrific book. It's called The Camino Way Lessons in Leadership from a Walk Across Spain. It's a delight to speak with you, Victor. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this. So you are not the first non-pilgrim pilgrim I've spoken to who has walked the Camino Way. I have a dear friend named Sumana, who's actually of Hindu Hindu descent, uh, who did it as well and found that walking this ancient road in Spain was a profoundly moving experience. She just kind of decided to do it for a vacation. What was your impetus to to walk the road? 
Yeah, I was taking a six-month sabbatical, and I wanted to uh, do a hike. And the thing is, I don't like camping. I'm too lazy to camp. So when you look at tr- when you look at trails in the world, there are few trails where you can hike for a month without having to camp. And the Camino is so old that villages sprouted up along it, so you always have somewhere to stay and, and eat. So that was a that, that's what made me do it. I didn't do it for the big spiritual reason, but after I did it, I realized this is a, a unique trail, and that's the reason why I keep going back. So you've you've been back. I, I didn't realize how many times have you walked the Camino? Yes, yeah, so I've I've walked it to five different occasions, and I've gotten three Compostelas for doing at least the last hundred kilometers. What does that mean for our, our listeners? What does it mean you've got a Compostelo? So the, the Compostela certificate is the certificate in Latin that's uh, centuries old, and it says that you you walked at least the last hundred kilometers of the Camino into Santiago de Compostela, and we're able to prove that by showing uh, stamps along the way that show that you'd actually walked it. So. In the um, in the in the days before the Reformation, it actually uh, represented a forgiveness of sins. So now it's it's a uh, it's, it's a historic document that's that's pretty neat. So you 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 can't claim your sins are for forgiven. <laughs> you still I have wish, to be careful goodness. about sinning. I, I, I need more than <laughs> I need more than three Compostellas for that. I think. So for those who don't know much about the 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 path. Uh, can you give them the reason why somebody would get the certificate? Why Why is it such an achievement to walk it? Yeah, so I can give you a little history and what the path is. That might be That'd the be best great. way to do that. Yeah. So somewhere around the year 830 AD, um, a priest in the northwest corner of Spain heard st- strange noises and lights outside of his church. So he went to investigate. And he uh, when he went to the hills outside of his church, he found a grave. And he declared that grave to contain the remains of St. James, or Sant Iago, as he's known in Spanish. So then he built a shrine, the shrine became a church, and then other people came to visit that shrine because it was a big deal to have one of the apostles, of uh, one of the 12 apostles, you know, uh, in, in Spain. So um, uh, people started sure. coming, in, and then in the year 950 AD, a, a, a bishop from France walked about 800 miles to see for himself. And by doing so, he became the first recorded peregrino or pilgrim to come from another country to watch to uh, to see the shrine for himself. And then it kind of uh, grew after that. And and then in the year 1140, uh, a book came out in Latin called the Codex Calixtinus. It was mostly about Saint the miracles of Saint James, but there was one specific part about just the logistics of making this walk on the Camino de Santiago, the way to Saint James. Mm. Um, and it included mentions of like souvenirs and. You know, where to stay, where to get water, things like that. So many people consider that the first tour book. And one of after the first guidebooks. Yeah, it's the first yeah. guidebook. Yeah, you, you'd appreciate that. And then after that, uh, interest exploded all over Europe and, and uh, tens of thousands of people were doing that even in like 13, 1400s. Yeah, it, it almost died out. Um, mm. And in 1979, only about 70, 70 pilgrims were recorded completing the Camino. But then in, in 1985, another book came wow. out and it started getting popular again and movies came out and and last, in 2019, 340,000 people got a Compostela for walking at least the wow. last 100,000, last 100 kilometers. Well, before we get to the lessons you learned, the guidebook writer in me wants to ask, do you have to make reservations in advance then? That's a lot of competition for, for pilgrims' places to stay. Yeah, there's different ways to do it. So uh, when you're at the, at the very peak months, like September, August, then the, the hostels can overfill you know, and, and things will be different after COVID. We'll see. But um, yeah, there's a little bit of competition and it's first come, first serve. So you can't reserve at the hostels that are just for pilgrims. But there are also private rooms all along the way. If, if you want to book places, you can do that as well. So there's there's options. But it, I, I tend to tell people to avoid the busiest months, August and September, and try to go in the uh, the slower months. 
Now, you're a businessman, and so you ended up taking business lessons from this walk. Uh, can you, how did your, how did your mind go there? And can you tell us what some of the lessons are? I guess they're lessons in leadership, really. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I've, I've had a career leading teams in both the private sector and government as well. And then uh, my, my last job, I had about 350 people in my organization. So then when I took a sabbatical, you know, I'm a very driven kind of type A person. And then when you get the, uh, the passport, the, the pilgrim credential, it's this, um, it, you fill it up. This is where you get your stamps along the way. And as, as a very and driven just person. Just so you, you're showing me what looks like a giant map. Yeah, it's like a brochure kind of. Brochure, and then it has yep. spaces where every night along the way, you get a stamp to prove that you actually stopped in those villages along the way. And this is what you use to prove uh, at the end to get your Compostela certificate. So uh, on the back of the one that Americans get, there was a, a few days into my into my walk, I noticed a um, there was a list of, called the Spirit of the Camino, which are seven values that pilgrims are supposed to live by while they're on the Camino, and they just really struck me because they they were they they were just beautifully worded, very simple. They weren't religious, and as I walked, and you have all this reflective time on the Camino. I said, "Geez, I wish I'd I wish I'd lived these values as a leader because I would have been a much better leader. My people would have been happier. I would have been more effective." And that's what kind of when I got back, I wrote a blog using those and that blog snowballed into the book deal. So that's kind of how that happened. So can you share with us some of those yeah. values? Yeah, there's seven, seven simple values. So uh, the first one is live in the moment. The second one is welcome each day, its pleasures and its challenges. The third one is make others feel welcome. The fourth one is share. The fifth one is feel the spirit of those who have gone before you. The sixth one is imagine those who will follow you. And the last one is appreciate those who walk with you today. So they just, they really resonated with me and they, they just, uh, they're, they're very common sense and they're, they're, I think they're beautifully worded. And it really inspired me to, to think about how, how leaders, you know, who, who may never get a chance to walk the Camino could still use those lessons. So that's why I wrote the, the blog that turned into a book. Well, it's interesting because when I think of leaders in business, and this may be me being a cynic. I don't think of sharing. I think of taking more, mm -hmm. uh, that you're trying to take your share of the market. You're trying to beat the other guy, whereas sharing seems more generous. It, it seems like it would be a bad business principle because if you're sharing too much, you're not taking enough. So yeah, how I'll does sharing you, work for leadership? Yeah. So I learned a really good example along the Camino. So in some cases, organizations are sitting on things which are very low cost to them to share, but create enormous value for their customers. So um, like in, in baseball, you think about, you know, when, it, when a foul ball goes out in the stands, that ball costs nothing to the, to the baseball team. But to a fan, it's, a, it's this treasured possession because it's been touched by a player sure. and all that. There's an example in the Camino, which really hit with me, which is, Part of the Camino goes through the Rioja and Navarra wine growing regions of Spain. And in one case, you walk right through vineyards. And in one case, one of the wineries created a fountain with free wine for pilgrims walking the Camino. And then as I thought about that, I said, geez, that's, that seems kind of crazy. But as I walked on, I realized that you wow. know, all they did is they basically poked a hole in the side of their building. And, and they're probably not giving out you know, their best wine. And it had, they had no cost of trans transporting it. So they found something very low cost that was like a priceless moment for pilgrims. So that's that's an example where sharing can be very, very profitable for both parties. Do you think that so people what they would come up with the jug and, and it was coming out of spigot in the wall? 
Yeah, they had a spigot. They had a white and red. And then you know, they had a sign that, you know, please only take, you know, what you're going to drink while here and don't abuse it. And it was off in the countryside. So it was away from where villagers would go. But, you know, people take their water bottle you know, and they sit. And, and the best part about it is you kind of congregate and it becomes a little pilgrim party because when you're walking the Camino, there's always someone a couple minutes behind you. So you, you kind of meet pilgrims there and you have a little happy hour. And then the, the hard part about it is that it, it tends to be when I walk, it tends to be in the morning. So, you know, my walk the rest of the day is a little bit slower and a little bit less uh, <laughs> less uh, direct than it may have been if I hadn't filled my water bottle up with wine. <laughs> now, do people tend to stop and buy a bottle, too, and thanks? or Because I'm wondering how this, I mean, obviously, they're going to get points in heaven for doing this. But how does this help their business? So there's not even a store there. So it's just, a, it's like one of their distribution centers or something. Wow. But what they do is they have a webcam. So there's, you can, you can look at this winery in the fountain like 24 seven and kind of live vicariously watching pilgrims go. And then they get a lot of, you know, I write about this in the book that, you know, they get a lot of goodwill from that. So I, I mentioned the, the winery's name in my book. So they get a lot of free advertising too. So they're not, sure. you know, that may not be their primary reason, but they're getting plenty of publicity out of it as well. Interesting. So sharing, being in the moment, a lot of this sounds almost Buddhist uh, in terms of the way they're approaching this. The Camino is also a physical challenge. You get uh, blisters on your feet. Your muscles get tired. You, You get tired of carrying everything you have with you on your back. Were there lessons in leadership from that type of physical challenge as well? And tell us, tell us a little bit about, you know, what the challenges were on the Camino. So I'll give it the average day so people can walk it at their own pace and their own distances. But an average Camino, uh, if you're doing the main path, so there's many different paths on the Camino de Santiago. The most popular is called the, the French Way. And the traditional start of that is just on the other side of the Pyrenees Mountains in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port in France. And if you walk 32 days of an average of 15 miles or 25 kilometers a day to get you to Santiago de Compostela, about 500 miles away. So that's, um, you know, that's the, the good news is you have all day to do that. You don't have to be a super athlete to do the Camino. About 20% of people who do the Camino, who finish the Camino, are over age uh, 60, for example. So people of all ages do it. The key is you just have to do it. Um, if you can walk a mile, you can probably walk 10 miles. And if you can walk 10 miles once, you could probably through a little bit of practice and will get your way up to walking 15 miles, you know, day after day. Um, and then it's just a matter of battling blisters and other things there. So it's what you learn is unlike business or other places, it's not a race. You're not competing against others. In fact, it's, there's a, there's a, a saying that it's not, it's not, you know, when you finish, it's who you finish with. So you kind of learn that on the Camino. We all help each other and it's all about helping each other get to the, uh, get to the goal. So it's, it's, it's a lesson that way. Yeah. Is it, is it, what is the average walk from stop to stop on the Camino from about, 50, uh, from about 15 miles? Town to so, town. Yeah. It's about 15 miles 15 per day. Miles. So you, oh. you have all day to do it though. So you, you know, you wake up a typical day, you know, if you're staying in the hostels, you have to be out usually by seven or 8 AM because they have to make way for the next day of pilgrims coming in. And then, you know, you walk, you walk, you've got all day to do it. And then usually you try to get in maybe like three or four in the afternoon or, or maybe two o'clock. And then, uh, you know, you shower up, you clean your clothes, and then you go out and you have a, a meal with pilgrims and then you kind of you get to bed early and you, you do it again. So it, it creates this very, even though it's a physical challenge, it's really mentally react, uh, mentally relaxing because you, your days are very simple. You just you just have to follow the yellow arrows. You don't need to look at a map. You just have to go. Your day is about getting from from your starting point to your ending point that day. 
and it all feeds into a bigger goal of getting to, to Santiago de Compostela. So it's, it's very mentally re- relaxing, I think, is what's something what, what attracts a lot of people to it as well. I remember reading that the last pope, uh, John Paul, uh, no, although the second to last pope, <laughs> yeah. had made uh, biking the Camino uh, an option for pilgrims. It used to be you had to do it by foot. Do you see a lot of people doing it that way or are people mostly still walking it? In 2019, about 5% of people who got a Compostela did it on bicycle. And uh, the one difference is they have to do at least 200, the last 200 kilometers on the trail with a bike. And what's interesting is when I when I first did, I do a lot of bike trails. And I thought about doing the Camino on a bike. And I'm really glad I didn't uh, because I think you get the social aspect is much different when you walk. Because when you bike, you kind of, you're speeding by people and it's hard to meet people. When you walk, you tend to walk with kind of the same people every day, you know, as you go village to village. So you really, at the end of a month or week or how lo- however long you walk it, you've got kind of this Camino family that I, I don't think you get on the bike. Although I've never done it on a bike, so I don't, I can't say that firsthand, but, but that's my sense. But, but 95% of people do it on foot and about, as I say, about, and, and about like a fraction of 1% do it with a donkey. That's like a tradition too. You'll see, you'll see people taking a pack mule. Wow. As well, so, yeah. Interesting. I'm assuming, do you rent the donkey or this, this is their own donkey? I mean, where do you get the donkey for this? It's, it's a tradition. So like a particular, so I had an experience with a, a gentleman from France who had his mule, you know, and we got, we got to be kind of friends, even though we didn't speak the same language, but it's, I think it's part of the tradition. And particularly, I think the French kind of do it. it it's a, uh, you know, it's a thing to do. And, and what the neat part about that is some of that, you know, you can call ahead and arrange like to have a place to, for the donkey to, to sleep and feed and all that kind of stuff. Huh. So yeah, it's, it's, it's like a niche <laughs> thing, but the people do it. I think the, I think the trail supports it too, because of the history. But I think the point you were making before seems to be the core point. My friend Sumana said that what made it so special, yes, the the scenery was incredible and learning about the history was was wonderful and seeing the churches and uh, but it was really about meeting the people and and forming deep relationships because you have there you have no um ulterior motives. Uh, you're not trying to get something from the other people you're walking with. You just happen to be on the same trail together. And I guess that too is a lesson for life and about how we should treat others. Yeah. And it's it's neat too, because you're kind of stripped away of all your brands and, and your job and all that. You're, you're just you. You're just a pilgrim on the Camino because we all kind of wear the same stuff. We're all walking the same thing. You, you don't have fancy cars and all that. So you, you connect with people on, on, a, on a, a simple level. And what's so great about it is people from all over the world do this. So you end up with a Camino family from all over the world. So I've, I've visited friends that I've met in the Camino in California, Ireland, the UK. I met my girlfriend on the Camino. Wow. I live in the US and she lives in Sweden. So it's a, it creates, oh it creates these amazing That's unique- rough during the last year, I'm sure. Yeah, we did. Yeah. So, uh, so we, yeah, we've, uh, we've always seen each other every three months and then, um, so, but we did in, in October, we found a, an exemption in the, in the border closures and I was able to, to get to Sweden to see her. And in fact, in a, in a kind of oh, a funny good. thing, the BBC, uh, did a, did a video story on us that ran in December and about a million people saw it. So it was kind of a, a, a random, wow. I'm not sure. No, what I remember that was a, early in. Early in coronavirus, that was a big thing. They were trying to, you know, l- open the borders to love. That there were a lot of couples who were separated by coronavirus, who didn't have a wedding ring uh, to prove their relationship, and it was a huge problem for thousands of people. Well, I'm glad you got to see each other. 
Well, and I'm also glad I got to speak with you. This has been an absolute delight. Thank you, Victor, so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me, Pauline. I really enjoyed this. That was a Prince of a Fellow, Victor Prince, once again. And this is the end of this week's show. But before I go, I have a big announcement. Uh, some background first. If you've ever been to the Louvre Museum, or if you've been lucky enough to go to the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, or if you've been to three or four dozen other great museums around the world, it's likely you may have rented a headset and taken a tour. And those tours were done by a fabulous multinational company called Antenna International. So my big announcement is Fromers has partnered with Antenna International to create neighborhood walking tours. And the first one is out. And because I wanted to make sure we got this right so we could use it as a model for when we hire our other wonderful Fromers authors in other parts of the world. I did this one myself. I, I wrote it. Uh, it was edited by Jason Cochran and Zach Thompson, my, my great colleagues at Fromers.com. Then I recorded it in my actually in my closet <laughs> to get good sound quality because there's uh, it's a very muffled, quiet space in there. Anyway, and it's to New York City's financial district, which is an incredibly historic, dramatic part of New York City because not one, but four major terrorist attacks have taken place there over the years, sadly, uh, and a lot of other extraordinary history. I mean, this is where George Washington took the oath of office as the first president of the United States. This is where the concept of freedom of the press was born. I mean, there's so much happened there. So we we decided to make that our very first walking tour. And since it's our first one, we're giving it away for free. So if you come to Fromers.com starting March 22nd and then into the future, you'll find an article about the tour that will lead you to the QR code. You can use the QR code to upload the tour uh, into your smartphone, works on all types of smartphones. It's going to be absolutely free for now. And uh, we hope you'll take a listen. We hope you will give us your thoughts on it. It's uh, it, it really was a labor of love and we're very, very happy with how it came out. Part of that is we had the best partners, state-of-the-art technology. You not only hear me speaking at each stop, but you get to use your Google Maps uh, to get around. And this can also be a really good armchair tour experience because there are beautiful photos with, it, with, with each stop. So you don't have to be in New York City to do this, although it's it's nice if you are, but it's it's great for armchair travelers too. All right, I'm I'm now starting to just run on at the mouth. So let's end this show on a good note. And as always, I'm I'm so grateful to be able to share this time with you. I thank you for listening. And to those of you who are traveling or just dreaming about travel, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week.